You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Operator Series again, Season 2 episode. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe we're at like 14 or something so far this year. Uh, Very excited for today's because we get to talk about skiing, which is something that I'm very passionate about and enjoy myself. Before we do that, everybody knows the rules. Throw in the chat where you're calling in from. So unlike usual, I'm actually in Chicago right now. So typically, I'm in Southern California, just south of L.A., but actually out in Chicago to meet with the team. And we've got a big event out here with uh, RetailX or IRCE. So it's, uh, it's always fun just to come to Chicago. So everybody wants to um, throw in where they're calling in, um, uh, dialing in from. I will introduce Kurt and Emily as well, and we'll see where they're calling in from also. But we have, <laughs> we have Kurt, the founder of Glade Optics. It's a ski brand that was, was born in Vermont and built in Colorado. And we also have Emily here, who is the CEO of Carthook, the leading upsell, cross-sell app in the Shopify world. So really excited to have you here. Kurt, where are you calling in from today, Kurt? So we are based in Breckenridge, Colorado. Awesome. And where are you today? Uh, today, I'm actually in Massachusetts. I'm at a family wedding this week. Nice. And, yeah. and Emily, I know you just made a big move. So where are you calling? Yeah. So made the big move uh, from West Coast to East Coast. So from Portland. And now I live outside of Tampa in St. Pete, Florida. Awesome. Big change. Yeah. So Kurt, we'll jump into uh, to Glade in a second. But Warren Miller, is he the best at making action movies? Or is there anybody that's even in the same ballpark? I, I think he's in his own league. I mean, within the ski industry, those movies are as as good as it gets. Yes. If if anybody doesn't know who Warren Miller is, go you know Google it or or go on YouTube and check it out. But he you know he's what drove a lot of my passion for getting into skiing and uh, you know just just I think really helped put skiing on the map. So let's talk about Glade. Let, let's start at the beginning. What was the catalyst to start the business? Yeah, definitely. I'll try to keep this as concise as I can. It's sort of a long circuitous story, but the the origin of the brand and you know sort of how we came to be here was that. I was um, very much sort of in the nine to five corporate lifestyle. I was working for a market research consultancy based in Boston, and this was right out of college. And what my sort of my team was tasked with at the time was helping legacy brands who had been around for years try to figure out how to take their traditionally sort of offline retail focused product line and bring it online. At the time, we were calling it the new consumer economy. I think now you could probably call it direct to consumer sort of e-commerce, whatever you want to call it. So when I was very young, I was exposed to a lot of really high-level decision makers within these sort of Fortune 500, Fortune 100 businesses. And that was a really sort of strong um, learning experience for me in terms of just just learning about how these guys were thinking about and going to market with these products and trying to reach this new consumer. So I was not a huge skier at the time, to be frank. You know, I, I was living in Boston. I did this sort of one or two ski trips a year. However, I knew enough about the industry and I had skied long enough to sort of know what was going on and and who the major players were. So it started really as a side hustle. You know, I was working this job. Uh, The company was called Forrester Research. I was there from 8.30 to 6.30 every night. I would come home from 6.30 and I would start working on Glade. 
So the real genesis of the idea and the thesis was basically that there was a whole group of consumers, skiers, snowboarders around um, sort of urban areas in a certain age demographic that were being talked to by incumbent brands in a way that was sort of incongruous with the way that they um, viewed skiing. So for someone like me who skied 10 days a year, I didn't really relate to the really cool pictures of people doing backflips off cliffs or in four feet of powder. Like that wasn't my ski experience. So the idea was like, hey, let's bring a product to market that speaks to skiers like me, who maybe only ski a few days a year, um, you know, really sort of pare it down, make the idea a bit simpler and just go to market with a really strong product and a really strong brand voice. It also helped that the, the category that I started out in being ski goggles is really top heavy. So there's a brand called Smith Optics that um, when I started, uh, this may still be the case, I don't know the exact numbers, but they owned over 70% of the market, which is wild. You know, you know, one brand owning 70% of all goggle sales. So that said to me, hey, there's probably room for a challenger brand like Glade to come in, make a wedge and um, enter the market with a sort of new innovative product. So when I first started, it was just me in my apartment in Boston working on how to figure out how to get this product in my hands and then out to my customers. So I did a few years of product testing, working with factories, working with manufacturers, trying to get it dialed. It took That was by far the longest part of the process. And once I settled on a product that I liked and that I thought I could sell, it was really just about putting a shingle up, right? Building a website and then doing the smallest production run that I could and just going for it. So that first year, I think, you know, I probably only sold a couple hundred goggles. I don't remember the exact number, but it was, you know, nothing really. It was just a market test. But what happened was that there was an immediate response from the market. So that said to me, clearly I'm onto something. Like I'm doing the bare minimum here in terms of marketing, in terms of our website, in terms of product. So that gave me a lot of confidence to really sort of take any of the profits that I had made from that season and just plowed into next season. So I really sort of bootstrapped it for for the first few years. Um, We were really lucky in the sense that I think I hit the market at the right time. There there was a lot of skiers and snowboarders that I think were sick of sort of hearing from Oakley and Smith and watching pro skiers ski in a manner that was not relatable to them. So that was really the origin story. I mean, from there, we you know were able to sort of bootstrap growth until we got on the radar of a few angel investors, as well as a venture capital fund more recently. But it's really been a story of sort of like slow, deliberate growth and making sure that we're always listening to our customers and giving them products that they want and that they need. Awesome. And it's interesting you mentioned like the relatable thing there. I think that's yeah. one of the areas that a lot of these direct consumer brands have really attacked, which is, you know, historically a lot of the larger companies have done, you know, mass advertising, which is showing, I don't know, like the, the ideal state. Because uh, similarly, you know, when I ski and I've been skiing since I was little, I'm not doing backflips or, <laughs> you know, charging through the trees. You know, I want to be able to. Uh, walk back, walk back to the car at the end of the day, and so that's an interesting approach. Talk about from like a manufacturing standpoint, because again, you were you started yeah. it. It was all by yourself. Were you doing that overseas? How'd you identify the manufacturer? How'd you like work through that process? Because I know that sometimes you can hit it out of the park at the start, and sometimes it can be a little bit more painful. Yeah, I did not hit it out of the park at the start. I'll say that it was a long process. This was probably the hardest part about getting Glade off the ground was getting a a product that I believed in out to market. So. The ski goggle industry is fairly idiosyncratic in the sense that there aren't that many players. So there aren't that many people that are capable of making this type of product. So the the landscape of factories that I was reaching out to was fairly, fairly narrow. I think there was only call it somewhere between five and 15 factories, right? So I had some ideas in mind of 
aesthetic domestically in the u.s or overseas or no one in the u.s makes them i wish they did but all overseas so it, it was really sort of a you know half the battle was finding a partner that i could work with both on a communication basis like hey here are the changes i want to make to the product were they able to then sort of internalize that and make the changes and send them to me but also just from like a product quality standpoint so it was really sort of a process of narrowing down you know hey i've got this this universe or this ecosystem of a few factories how can i make at least one of these guys capable of working with me at such small volumes and how do you work through that because i know that's a huge pain point for companies getting started is the the order volume they have out of the gates is just below you know what the expectations that the manufacturers have so um as you might imagine skiing is a highly seasonal business which for all intents and purposes makes it very challenging however with the product sourcing stuff it was actually it actually worked in my favor because I was able to go to these factories and say, hey, you guys are not making goggles in January, February, March, right? Like uh, everyone that you have that you are contracted with that you are making goggles for, they want them in their factories by September, October at the very or in their warehouses by September, October at the very latest. So I was able to say in that downtime, why don't you just throw a couple goggles on the line and I'll pay for that, you know, much later in the season than you normally would. So I was able to sort of use the seasonality to my advantage, which uh, you know, I will say the seasonality in every other respect is um, far more of a challenge than it is advantageous. But in the, in the early days, that helped a lot. Interesting. I like that. Whereas, you know, you got to get creative and, uh, as an entrepreneur and and finding like what are their pains as a manufacturer and their business is seasonal. And so, how can you level that out a little bit, even if your your initial orders your initial runs pretty small? So, talking yeah. to that with like you know something I wanted I wanted us to get into, and let's jump into that now since you brought it up. The seasonality, and so yeah. as a you know you're you're the founder, you're the CEO, you're running the company. You don't want necessarily completely lumpy sales. It is a very seasonal business. How do you kind of even that out throughout the rest of the year? It's hard. I'm, there's no sort of silver bullet for this. It's a, it's a lot of different things that we do. I think the biggest thing from a cash flow perspective that has been helpful for us is that we will put our goggles on pre-sale um, far earlier than our competitors will. So if you go on our website now, you can see you can actually purchase a pair of goggles. They won't ship until the fall. But we're able to actually sort of start that sales process. Um, so that was something that we started doing last year. And they don't was, get them until the fall. Why? Production timelines. So we won't get them into the fall because that's just the cadence in which we are operating from a manufacturing perspective. And, and why'd you decide on goggles to start out of everything from like the, yeah. you know, the ski world? Why goggles? It's a great question. So there was a couple criteria that I wanted. One was high margin. As you might imagine, goggles are high margin. Two was shipping light. So I wanted something that I could ship that wasn't going to be super costly from a margin perspective, because I was really concerned about the fact that in order for me to get this business off the ground, like I'm not going to be able to walk into a group of angels or a venture capital group with a deck that says, hey, I want to start a ski goggle company like that. That pitch lands zero times out of 100. So the idea was like, OK, I need a high margin product that ships really light that will allow me to cash flow a lot early on so that I can actually build up a book of sales and say, hey. Yeah, I know that we were selling a product that you might not think would be a fit for this, but look at this traction that I have. So it was really about a product that I believe that I could sell to a very niche group that fit those criteria. Interesting. I like that. That's something that I think that understanding the the pros and cons of actually shipping something is starting to like permeate more throughout like the D2C ecosystem where you said, Hey, what is something that I can ship light? And I've been seeing that with some of our customers where they yeah. go, okay. I'm still going to sell the same item, but how can I make it maybe slightly smaller or weigh a little bit less? So the dimensional weight, which is one of the two main factors in figuring out what like the shipping cost is going to be, 
because that's such an impact on your margin. And that's on every single sale because you yes. have the item. And the other thing about that is that the sort of the more you can dial in your variable costs or lower them, that actually gives you a lot more room to run with advertising. So if you're able to ship something light, if you're able to ship something high margin, all of a sudden you have a lot more wiggle room to work with on your customer acquisition costs, which four years ago, you know, might not have been an issue. But if you're trying to do that now, like you, you need that cushion for sure. Well, talk us through that. What's been the evolution from a marketing perspective and, and, and how are you navigating today's crazy world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm dealing with a lot of the challenges that a lot of other brands are dealing with right now. So when I first started, costs were a lot lower. So it was easier to pump out a bunch of digital ads and say, hey, you know, I, I can afford to acquire customers at this rate. As we have grown and as the sort of ecosystem has changed, what we have done is basically turn the dial down on things like Facebook and Google and platforms that everyone else is trying to get arbitrage on. And we tried to turn the dial up on owned channels, content. So things like email, we have a YouTube channel that we try to promote pretty heavily. We do a ton of partnerships. That's been a really strong marketing avenue for us. And just sort of being scrappy. I think it's for us at this point, it's like we don't need to nail a bunch of scalable channels. If we just put a really sort of holistic marketing strategy together and the pie chart is fairly well divided, then that is is really strong for us right now. Talk me through a partnership. Who is that? What does that look like? Yeah. So again, we are in such a unique industry, both good and bad. So one of the great things about skiing is that it's a very relationship-based business, as you might imagine. So if you're going to conferences or if you're going to sort of anything industry-related within the ski category, you are likely going skiing with other business owners. You are likely getting a drink with someone. It's just sort of a very, um, insular is the wrong word, but it's a very, like there's a lot of camaraderie within the category. So for us, um, what has worked really well is we will find like-minded brands or I will run into like-minded founders. And we will basically say to them, hey, you know, we have a similar target audience. The goal for us is to acquire customers that are similar to your customers. How can we work together to do that in a way that will benefit us both? It changes depending on who the partners are, but the most common one is to do something like an email giveaway. That's that's really good for us. It's a good way to grow our email list and then um, get in front of, you know, call it like a apparel brands customers. It also takes the form of like we'll do we'll so do they're primarily online. Primarily, yes. So something that's this is again sort of unique to us, but what we'll do with so if we want to partner with someone like a ski magazine or a ski publisher, rather than doing the traditional advertising avenue, what we've done that's worked really well is we'll partner with them on a product basis. So we'll say to someone like snowbrains.com, really popular ski blog, we'll say, hey, rather than advertising on your blog, why don't we create a product with you that you can sell to your customers? We'll split the profit evenly or we'll work out some sort of profit share. We'll take all the inventory risk on our side. So we'll make a goggle that has the Snowbrains logo on it they'll blast it out to their customers or their readers and say, hey, we just did a collaborative goggle with Glade. Go to their site to buy it. Half those people might buy the goggle, half them might buy one of our goggles. So it's just a really sort of good way to organically get in front of people without being you know, really sort of sales pitchy. I like that. So how's the catalog evolved? Because you guys are obviously selling helmets and sunglasses and, yep. and other items today. So when, when in the life cycle of Glade did you decide to evolve that into you know, expanding the the product set? <laughs> Probably when I got like the 100th email from a customer saying, hey, which helmet brand should I buy? Because we didn't sell them. <laughs> um, so helmets were sort of the first natural extension to our brand. 
if you are looking for a pair of ski goggles, you're likely also looking for a helmet. Um, so that has been a tremendous complimentary product. This is something that we use CartHook for quite a bit, which is if you buy a pair of goggles and you get into that post-purchase post ecosystem, that the helmet is such an obvious product for them to buy next that if they haven't already bought it, we'll, we'll flash them that promo. But we have done that with helmets. Um, we have tried to even out the seasonality with things like sunglasses. But for us, it's really sort of like we have this group of customers. We know they're outdoorsy, active people. What else do they want from us? And let's not do it in a way that we're forcing people to do things or that we're sort of forcing a product onto them. Let's make it more organic. I like that. And it's interesting about the sunglasses on trying to even out the sales throughout the year. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a minute, but maybe talking through cart hook a little bit. And then Emily, we, I've got quite a few questions for you as well. You know, what was, again, what was the tipping point to use cart hook? How do you use it today? And then, you know, how, how do you do it so that, you know, you're still driving a very strong customer experience, even though you're trying to increase the AOV or whatnot from that specific customer? So tactically, the, the sort of the philosophy behind it was we're spending all these resources, all this time, all this money to drive traffic to our site. We're getting people on the site. We're getting them to purchase. They typically buy a pair of goggles and then they're gone. We never see them again. A, because our product assortment is small and B, because we didn't really have the on-site sort of capability to allow a follow-on purchase. So, you know, as we said before, creating a, a wider product line helped sort of increase our AOV, increase our LTV in that respect. And something like CartHook is totally invaluable for that just because of the fact that Maybe they didn't see the helmet on their first go around, or maybe they weren't sure if they want one. But now that they've gone through the purchase process and they bought a pair of goggles, we can then flash them a promo or an order that says, hey, you know, we know that you didn't buy this the first time around, but hey, we'll give you 10 or 15% off to add this to your card as a bundle. You're doing this immediately after they check out, correct? Or you're doing this like in a follow-up email? Immediately after they check out. So they're already sort of primed, you know, they theoretically have their credit card out or, you know, they're in buying mode, right? So... It's things like that, just that reduce the friction or that increase our AOV by a little bit, you know, that make all the difference in the world. Because if you multiply that over thousands and thousands of customers, all of a sudden, it's a meaningful difference. Yeah. And it's, you know, to jump in here and just kind of tip, like piggyback on that, what Kurt was saying is what they're doing is they're taking advantage of that, uh, you know, that high, that purchase high, right? We see that a lot when you're making a purchase and, and Kurt's products, while not super expensive. They're, 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 it's a higher price point. So he's tapping that market. His team have set up a really great strategy of taking advantage of that, that purchase high and offering either a complimentary product or a bundle price of buy one, get one to make it easy for that customer to increase their, their order with one click adds a second pair of goggles or goggle case to yeah. to their initial order it's it's super easy and such an easy way for them to just increase their average order and so emily on that note talk to, you know share a little bit more on cart hook and are you guys yeah. saving the credit card information so it's literally like one click and purchase or what does yeah. that look like yeah so the uh, high level is essentially yes we are a, an extension of the shopify checkout page so Shopify is hanging on to that payment token to allow the shopper to continue through the entire buying process without needing to enter their credit card again. So it is a simple thing of, you know, create your offer, have a button that says, yep, I want it, buy now, add it to my order, and we will do all the rest. So on the Shopify merchant side, so on Kurt's side, when he goes in for fulfillment, he sees one order. It's the one order with, but 
they have that that post purchase offer that's bundled into the initial order. And I remember the the first time you know I, I came across Carthook and I was so excited when I stumbled across it because <laughs> uh, this company I helped run forever ago, Paleo Hacks. We did a lot of stuff. We'd actually sell through. Um, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on it. It was one of the the affiliate softwares. And click no, no, it wasn't ClickBank. Anyways, I'll, it will come to me. But we yeah. had the most duct tape solution where we would save uh-huh. like the payment token because we saw about like a third of our customers would add the, an additional item if we prompted with them right afterwards, as long as they could just basically click one button and purchase. And so, yeah. Emily, you're seeing this across thousands of you know or, or hundreds of brands or maybe thousands of brands. Uh-huh. From your perspective. What is the best? I mean, and obviously it depends on each brand, but you mentioned buy one, get one. There's yeah. upsell, there's like a cross sell, something with a similar AOV, there's something that's like less, you know, it costs less. So, what do you work best? Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, you've got your pre purchase, you've got your post purchase, your thank you page offers, you know, where we find you're most successful with capturing that uh, added revenue is with the post-purchase offers. So yes, we uh, implement that post-purchase. There's less friction. So you're not competing with the initial order with like a pre-purchase order that could confuse the shopper, make them abandon the entire order. Uh, We jump in after that initial purchase at the post-purchase side of things. And yeah, it's a a one-click, no credit card and charge. And where we see the most success, again, each brand is different, but, you know, speaking to kind of Kurt and the products that he sells, you want to do kind of a complimentary product, right? So it's either a buy one, get one. So buy one pair of goggles, get your second pair at a discounted rate or add that complimentary product to the initial product. So it makes sense. If you're just purchasing a pair of goggles, it makes sense to have your post-purchase be a goggles case, like, right. They'll need that for transport purposes. So it's useful. We find a lot of success. We have a lot of consumables and people health and wellness uh, selling supplements, the same thing. One, get one or uh, not relatable to Kurt's product, but offering a free sample that merchant is not going to see immediate revenue increase, but you know, we're taking a look at the whole picture, increasing your customer, uh, you know, life cycle. So return, repeat customer, you're giving them a free product in hopes that they return to be a repeat customer. So increasing your AOV in in different strategic ways with a free product, complimentary products, buy one, get ones are huge. And if you're just getting started, a great recommendation that we have for, you know, merchants is to have your, your bestseller use your bestseller as your your starting point for post-purchase offers. So you know people are buying this and and create an offer based off of your bestseller. From a data standpoint, if you have this, what percentage of people are purchasing something post-purchase? Yeah. So we just recently have looked at our kind of conversion numbers and kind of our average overall across all of our merchants is our average conversion number is around 15%. So so merchants can see 15% increase uh, just by implementing post-purchase offers. And what about from like a an AOV perspective, if you bundle it all together, so you're seeing 15% increase, are you seeing that as a 50% increase in AOV, it depends because some people are selling something more expensive or less expensive. What are you seeing typically? Yeah, that would be your AOV. So looking at around 15% increase in revenue. That's meaningful. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially with Facebook costs and everything jumping. 
you uh, know, it helps. Yeah, increasing that revenue helps kind of your bottom line, your your profit margin. So you're making more money, you can invest more and, and implement different strategies. Awesome. And so I want to come back to that in a minute. But speaking that with Facebook, Kurt, like what have you found lately? <laughs> Where are you in in the Facebook world? How much how much of your I know I know you said earlier that you've been expanding the channels you focus on. Is Facebook a primary driver? Is it one of many? How do you view Facebook today? It's one of many. I mean, we try not to be super reliant on one particular platform or channel versus another. I think that there's always channel risk. There's always platform risk. I mean, you know, I think <laughs> less than six months ago, people were saying, you know, email is an own channel. You can quadruple down on email. And now look with the new iOS update. It's like, well, it's probably not as efficient or as owned as you once thought it was. We'll explain that real quick. Like the iOS update, and what's that impact meant to you? So I, I will caveat this by saying I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding of it is such that it, with this new update, it will be much, much harder for ESPs and you know whether, whether that's Clavio or MailChimp or whoever you use, it'll be much harder for them to track open rates, meaning that that pixel that you have in there that fires when you send an email might not be firing anymore. So if you are segmenting your customer list or sending emails based on engagement with your emails, that got a lot harder. So I think for... Email marketers, you know, cleaning your list is really important. You know, making sure that you're sending discounts and codes to people that are unengaged is really important. And that's stuff that you might not be able to do anymore. So I think that's a pretty big impact to how people will be sending out emails in the future. And so they're blocking the third party tracking. Yeah. Okay. And then how do you utilize cart hook if you do on upsell, cross sell? post-purchase through email as well. Does that connect to Klaviyo if that's what you use from the email solution or how, how are you utilizing that? So one thing I'll add to what um, you guys were just sort of discussing was the, you know, you have that 15% revenue list, but lift, but the beauty of that is that it has zero impact to conversion rate. I think you touched on this a little bit, Emily, but okay. that's why I think it's such a great tool is because you can do the upsell, cross-sell a thousand different ways on your website, but to be able to do it after the conversion has already been made, is such a relief just because there's so much nuance to what impacts conversion rate. At the end of the day, that's sort of your most important metric. So to your point, yes, we use that post-purchase. In terms of email, yeah, we if if they go through the process, they buy a pair of goggles, we say, hey, here's a helmet for 10% off after that purchase. If they're still not buying a helmet, we will definitely send a follow-up email depending on sort of what they purchased and contextually, what time of year it was, et cetera, trying to get them back. So I think there's it's sort of the great part about stuff like this is that there's a million different ways to do it. And depending on who your customers are and what you're selling, you can really customize it to your needs. I, I like that. And that's, I'm glad you called that out. That's a great point where you're seeing a noticeable and meaningful impact to your AOV, but you're not impacting your conversion rate, which is often the problem when you try to increase prices or something like that, you're going to see the CR, the conversion rates drop. And so it's really a trade-off there. Yeah. From, from testing the post-purchase experience, I think you have a great you know, so uh, product set where it's, if you're searching for goggles, you're likely looking for a helmet and vice versa. What have been some wins or positive tests that have come from the post-purchase and, and what, what's your biggest failure on the post-purchase experience? <laughs> so wins are definitely when we are using a, as we've said before, a contextual product. So things like cases, extra lenses, sort of anything that we say can enhance your ski day that's a really good sort of follow on message to send. It makes sense. Um, it's, it doesn't feel sort of out of the blue for the consumer is my assumption where we have failed is when we have tried to use it as like a, almost like a clearance mechanism. So, Hey, you just bought a pair of goggles. Do you want these rain jackets that we didn't sell out of last year? Like that has not worked well for us, which 
you know, in hindsight, sort of, of course, that's, that's why um, it didn't perform as well. But, you know, I think, again, just personalizing everything to the individual consumer is so important. That's great. And so what I love with this is, Kurt, you have, you know, you know, your brand so intimately and you can go deep on that. And then Emily, on your side, you're seeing it across so many different companies. Um, and so you see things like at a broader scale, but not necessarily as deep. But from your perspective and what you've seen, Emily, what have been maybe the biggest lessons learned or misses in how people try to utilize Carta? Yeah, I think, you know, Kurt made a good point, right? It's just because you have product, you know, not every product makes sense for a post-purchase offer, right? You, you know, your customers best. The one thing we recommend is like, you know, what your customers are buying, you know, your SKUs, you know, your products. And that's when we, we give that overarching say, use your, uh, uh, have a complimentary product, buy one, get one, you know, think of it that way along the lines of, you know, your customers best, here's where we can guide you into making that right strategy decision. But it is one of those things like it's it's not a forget it, you know, a set it and forget it scenario, right? You want to kind of take a look at your data and make sure that your funnels are performing the way that you want to see them perform and make tweaks that way. I will say one of one of our recommendations is like inventory clear out, right? Like that is something, but doing it in a thoughtful way. It doesn't make sense to have a raincoat go with goggles, but you could think of it, it, different ways to have that be a great post-purchase offer. So you know your product, we're happy to guide you in the right way, but definitely it has to be it has to be a, a smart complementary product to what they're purchasing. Yeah, I think we ran into issues when we were sort of ignoring the seasonality of our products. Mm-hmm. So you you know, hey, you just bought a pair of sunglasses. Do you want a ski helmet with it? Like no, of course I don't. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, Kurt, I know even when you're checking out on Glade, because the checkout is so important. I think it's interesting yeah. if like people that like to nerd out about e-commerce like myself is, you know, Shopify, for example, started off as a shopping cart, yeah. as a checkout solution. Big commerce started off as a shopping cart and a checkout solution. And I know still to this day, every like a lot of their product launches revolve around the actual checkout experience. And so it's such, you know, with, without that, that actually used to be the biggest pain point for e-commerce, which is actually transacting and receiving that, that money online, which is mind-blowing to think about today. And so, Kurt, I think it's interesting, your checkout experience, when I try to add goggles to the cart, it asks me if I want to add other items, like, you know, you mentioned the case and the helmet, also pre-purchase. Are you utilizing cart hook for that, or how are you making that work? Yeah, so we have, I mean, there are probably 25 different tools like that running on our website right now. The the thought behind the sort of the the pre-checkout upsell like that is our product, we have basically broken down what is typically sold as a bundle. So if you go to our competitor's website, you know, go to Smith Optics or whoever you want, and you look at their products, what they are doing is they are selling you a case, a goggle, and a lens all at once for one price. We are sort of breaking that apart. When you add the goggle to your cart, we are then giving you the option to add each individual piece as you see fit. We see super high engagement rate and uh, conversion rate on that pop-up. I think it's like north of 35%. So Wow. 35% of people engaging with that, adding additional items to their cart. Right. But so again, the reason that's working so effectively for us is because those are items that are commonly sold together from our competitors. So our customer base is already really primed to buy these things together. But we are able, what we are doing is basically anchoring them to that $94 price point when they see it. They're, oh man, goggles for $94. They add them to the cart, that pop-up 
comes up and then before they know it, they've got the lens and the case in there and then they might even buy a helmet too. So while our goggles are sort of cheaper than our competitors, our AOV is still north of $150, which mm -hmm. is more expensive than any individual goggle on our website. So through these tools, we are actually able to get to a price point that is very similar to our competitors, but it doesn't really look like that. Yeah, that's huge. So something that I'm curious to see how it will plays out over the next couple of years is on the checkout page, there's so many one-click solutions. There's Shop Pay. Yeah. There's Shopping Gives, which is a giving platform to round up. There's a lot of the companies rolling things out from like a green perspective. It's it's almost like this. It's like driving down the strip in Vegas where it's just like Billboard Central just to check out. There's a firm. There's recharge on like the subscription side of the business. With yours, it's very clean. It's basically essentially Shop Pay. Yeah. Did you test a lot of the other one-click solutions and then you whittled it down? Like, How did you get to where you are today? It's 100% intentional. I cannot stand super cluttered checkout pages. You know, just, just from like a consumer perspective, I think it's bad UX. But from a data perspective, when we A-B tested everything, our conversion rates were much better when we had one or two of those buttons on there. You know, Again, going back to the conversion rate and sort of not cluttering up the checkout or the pre-checkout process, I think it's so important. You know, I, Our data showed basically that if we... So there's two ways to think about it. Let's put as many checkout options on the site as possible and make it make sure we're capturing everyone's favorite checkout option. Or we put one or two of the most popular ones on there and perhaps we're pushing people towards their second or third choice or they're just manually filling out themselves. Either way, if you're cluttering up your checkout page with all of those options, if your conversion rate is lower than it was with just one option, then it doesn't matter that you're offering a customer their favorite checkout button because it's not working. It's not making, you know, it's not really like converting or making you any more money. So that was our justification for that. I like that. And so your your products, I feel like from an AOV standpoint, you mentioned around 150. It's kind of at that tipping point where it's, at least from like the data that I looked at a couple of years ago, really the number for people to not ask their spouses like for <laughs> approval to buy something was in like the $57, $58 range. You're over 2x that. Have you tested any of the buy now, pay later options or no? We have. I mean, to start, I would say the average skier is probably not asking their spouse about buying ski gear. I think it's often sort of a personal purchase. <laughs> so we have tested those and they have worked well for us. So again, sort of back to our specific category, the ski industry was actually one of the first industries where I ever saw a buy now, pay later. So I bought a pair of skis from a brand called Moment Skis based in Reno, California or Reno, Nevada. And they at the time were sort of like a craft skiery, skiery is what they were calling themselves. But I remember thinking, wow, I'm buying a $800 pair of skis, but I can pay for it over time. And this was however many years ago. So I think the ski category in general and the outdoor gear category, for sure, people are primed to do the buy now, pay later stuff. So we do use them and they work. Awesome. And then Emily, let's go back to cart hook. And so I think it's, I, I always love to see how brands get creative in utilizing technology or the APIs or the integrations to really push the limits and, and drive the, the product development forward in creative ways. Any, any examples that stand out to you and maybe weird ways that people have utilized cart hook best to, you know, to really increase the average order value? Uh, value? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's 
mainly kind of on our side, right? So we are presenting an app to merchants to allow them to add post-purchase offers. So from a product side, from a company side, how we're utilizing the Shopify API is is kind of taking advantage of of these moments, like what Kurt was talking about, pre-purchase on the cart page. And there are also things like order bumps once you get to the checkout page that do convert really well. So when we're looking at where does Carthook want to grow as an app, that's where we're kind of focused on of taking advantage of these moments so we can become, you know, a suite of services. So so when Kurt's looking to how can I improve so-and-so, post-purchase, pre-purchase, thank you page offers are huge. Uh, we're seeing that as, as an option. You can hit every single market. So as a company, that's where we're looking at what opportunities do we have now that we have access to Shopify's APIs. And that's in areas of adding on additional post-purchase, pre-purchase, thank you page. I will say, if it's a time to, to drop some spoilers, things we're working on internally inside of stuff is, is, is understanding that data is valuable to our merchants. So implementing A-B testing, allowing to A-B test some different funnels to see what works uh, and what's not working. So, and so you guys are rolling out A-B testing within... We will be, yeah. So that should hopefully, uh, you know, light a fire now that I'm, I'm putting it out there in the world for the product team before Black Friday, Cyber Monday, right? So the perfect opportunity to make sure you've got your funnels locked and loaded for the biggest online shopping it's now weeks. <laughs> I feel like Black Friday is now like weeks, uh, not just two days. So it's, you know, we're looking at these different ways of how can we help our merchants optimize and make very smart strategic decisions with their funnels. And that starts with like, you know, data, A-B testing, understanding what, you know, is working, what's not. And then, you know, subscriptions should hopefully launch. It's a great way to retain your customer, your well, build brand equity for one, and then kind of increase your your customer lifetime value is, is offering a subscription. So if you have products that make sense from a ski, you know, ski perspective, <laughs> you can get skis on, on a subscription base, but, you know, thinking about ahead of and there's any brands in health and wellness, you know, subscriptions as post-purchase offers is is also a super smart, smart strategy. I like that. There we go. And breaking news on on offers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Testing. You're gonna have yeah, to A B testing. Yeah, product. it's gotta yeah, happen now. This, yeah, this I mean it's, signed up for it. But could be super valuable to to Kurt's strategy. Totally. I love that. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So question Kurt, you mentioned so you brought up the sunglasses earlier and I'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. When did you guys launch that and how has that helped even out sales throughout the year? Yeah. So as you might imagine, as I sort of alluded to before, our sales season with goggles and helmets is very compressed. We're really doing 90% of our sales November, December, January. So the thought behind releasing sort of off-season products or products that are not ski or snow related was that um, it's, you know, A, just a, a great way for us to tap into our customers again, just both from a wallet share point of view and a mind share point of view. So we can speak to them in the summer, we can send them emails that are relevant. And we're not just like, hey, remember us, like, where are your favorite ski brand? You know, we can say we've got this sunglass product that we think would be great for you. From a cash flow perspective, it's super helpful because, you know, as I'm sure any other e-commerce founder listening right now knows, financing inventory is is really, really challenging. So if we're able to finance our inventory with profits that we're getting from our off-season product line, that is the dream. So the thought process behind the sunglass line that we have up there now is like, We have all these customers. We know generally sort of who they are and what they like to do. We know that they're outdoorsy people. 
why don't we develop a pair of sunglasses that uh, would fit their lifestyle and sort of fit their needs as a hiker, mountain biker, fisherman, whatever it is that you do. So we started really as a pilot. Um, we've got this one pair of sunglasses up there now. Um, we actually recently just made a hire um, who's now our head of product who is um, starting to build out a whole new sunglasses line for next spring. So the idea is like, listen, we have this devoted fan base. We have these people that love Glade, that follow us on our Instagram, that follow us on our YouTube channel, and we don't have much to sell them. So we should be really sort of hitting them wherever they are, both in the ski season as well as in the off season. And I'll add to that just sort of historically, what's what was a challenge was from a brand perspective, like how, how do we think about Glade sort of beyond just being a ski brand, right? Like how do we think of Glade as the go-to optics brand for mountain athletes. And I think a lot of that is going to be um, sort of priming our customer base with uh, better photo assets and copy and things that just sort of get the get the ball rolling for us to start to make that transition. That's great. And it's interesting you mentioned like getting it ready for the spring line and it's uh, August right now. And so how is that from like a product development standpoint? Is it, you know, how much how much lead time do you usually give between rolling out these new products? almost a year. I mean, it's it's a long, long sales cycle for us. Um, it's certainly to get a new product line up and running, we have to give ourselves a little more time just because we do have to do a lot more product testing. We have to do all the sourcing. We have to do sort of all the communication, building the molds, doing all the tooling. It's just a long process. Once we, so for example, for the goggles, like we, we have most of that up and running now, you know, we do a new model every year, but for most of that, we can give ourselves seven or eight months and be okay. But for our product line, yeah, like we're, like we will start thinking about 2022 ski goggles in probably November, like right around Black Friday is when we'll start thinking oh, about next year. That's a that's a long time. If yes. You mentioned the inventory financing. You're financing that through cash flows. You're financing that through raising capital. You're using a third party solution like ClearBank or Settle. Like how are you? How are you financing inventory? Yeah. So we've done everything you just mentioned. It's always a mix. So it sort of depends on a how much capital we need that season. And B, sort of what sort of type of offers we're getting, what makes most sense for our growth plan, you know, what what is our cash flow projection look like? Where do we want to be? Um, so we have used a variety of different services. I've raised equity for the business in the past. I have done things like Kick Further, which is a debt financing tool, it's like a crowdfunded debt financing. We this year used Settle, which you mentioned, which I think is an awesome tool. We have used ClearBank for marketing purposes in the past as well. And we've used a local bank. So as we've grown, having the conversation with local banks has been easier, but it's still obviously fairly challenging because we are asset light, you know, it's our inventory and our personnel really. So it's, I don't have a silver bullet solution for people is what I would say in summary. Well, well, I think actually what you shared is extremely valuable in that it evolves yeah. as the company evolves and the banks, which maybe you can get the best rates they're also very risk averse. And so on day one, you go there and they're not going to be able to help you out. But as the company grows and you, and you build up the credibility and the history, you know, then you can start going to the banks and start utilizing different methods. And then as companies like Settle, who you mentioned, pop up and grow, there are more options as well. Yeah. And it's it's worth starting those discussions really as soon as you can, because, you know, hey, even if they say no, or if you expect them to say no, what's really great is that if you keep that dialogue open and you keep coming back to them, like every six months, every 12 months, whatever the cadence makes sense for you, you can you can show them a growth story. You can say, hey, you know, yeah, I didn't raise any capital from you, but I raised 50K from kick further. And, you know, that allowed us to buy this inventory and we got to this revenue level. So I think being able to tell a sort of concise and cohesive growth story goes a long way. 
That's awesome. So I think we had till the 45 minute mark and I've taken more of your guys' time, but I really appreciate it. I, I do have a question that we always close up with these on and Emily, we'll start with you and then Kurt, you can help bring us home. So go in any direction you want and go as broad as you want. What is your number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs today? I have found that having a mentor has helped me tremendously. So it's utilize your network, utilize the people that you have around you because as much as I have always wanted to go at things alone, there are some people that know a lot more than I do. And it's always good to lean lean on those resources, family, friends, your community. So ask for help for anyone getting started. Ask for help. You utilize everyone you have around you. I love that and completely agree. Mm-hmm. Kurt, what's your number one piece of advice? Yeah, I totally agree with that, Emily. Um, <laughs> my, my advice, I think, would be just be willing to try things, you know, as, as crazy or as, as small and insignificant or as, you know, sort of outlandish as you think they might sound. Um, I think some of our greatest successes at Glade have been by just trying new things and seeing what sticks. You know, there have been things that we have tried that I thought I was so sure would succeed and that have failed spectacularly. And there have been marketing channels that we've opened up because one day I woke up in the morning and was like, I'm just going to email this one person and see what happens. You know, it's the editor of Outside Magazine. There's no way they're going to answer. So just just try stuff. You know, you never know what's going to work. I, I love that. Don't fear failure and, and yeah. you know, ask yeah. people for help like Emily yeah. shared. I could not agree more. Use your network and provide as much value to them as you can and, and vice versa. That's huge. Yeah. Well, hustle. And hustle. There we go. Well, mm-hmm. Kurt and Emily, I really appreciate you both taking the time out of your day. I, I know I learned a lot from here. And uh, Emily, for breaking some news on what's coming on Cart Hub. <laughs> yeah. Now so. it's at the accountability piece now. I'm holding, exactly. holding the team accountable. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Well, thank you very much. And everybody yeah. who attended, really appreciate you taking the time here. And yes, we will see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Casey.